Lord shaped them, and probably, uh, probably the one chance in my life to have the opportunity to do a series like that. Probably never do it again. If we're alive in 25 or 30 years, maybe we'll do that again, but it has been such a great series of lessons for me to prepare. It's, it's a unique thing to study people rather than a passage and to look at how the Lord shaped them from, from Peter's need to depend on uh, God to Nathaniel's just very open spirit to, of course, last week, the tragedy in the life of Judas. And so I always knew at the start of this series, uh, Master Make Me, that we would end with uh, Master Make Me Like You. And so that's the lesson we're coming with here tonight. Master, make me like you. Now, how do you exactly do that? I struggle with that because when we're, when we're going through these men that we just listed that Christ chose to be his 12 disciples, it's easy to just kind of research passages where they're mentioned and study those. And so Monday, when I started thinking this, wh- where would be a great place to go? What should we talk about regarding Master, make me like you? Because Luke 640, you're on the same page. Luke 640 says... And this isn't necessarily that, it's in, it's in a different context, and I don't want to use this, but it, it, it is a principle that says everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. In other words, when, when you train under somebody, this is a principle that he's making, when you train under somebody, you become like that person. And that, in a sense, was the goal for Christ with these 12 followers. So I, I struggled a little bit on how to craft this, but I finally landed on three passages uh, three really sentences that we're going to look at regarding uh, the 12 men and then how that applies to our following of Christ so hopefully we can make some applications uh, along the way. Okay, Here we have the account which we just read which is why we stopped in our series on Luke and started looking at the 12 disciples when Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray, prays all night and then calls the many followers to himself and says I want you, 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 you and you up to 12. And I want to focus on the word Uh, in verse number 13, chose. From them he chose 12. The word is the same word that's frequently used of like election in Ephesians 1 verse 4 when it says he chose us before the foundation of the word. It's the word eklego, which means to call out of. He chose out of. And so in a sense, when he called those, I'm sure when Jesus was up on the mountain praying, uh, he's sifting through the, maybe 100 of followers that he's going to select from, and, and he's choosing these 12 from out of that group. Okay. In Luke chapter uh, 1, or excuse me, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, that he reminds us that it was Jesus who specifically chose these 12. The word choose has the idea of to, ta- to prefer and to select and to take to yourself. Acts uh, Acts 1-4 reminds us that Jesus, when he was taken up through the Holy Spirit, gave commands to the apostles whom he had chosen, eklego, whom he had called and chosen. And then in Acts 1-24, I should have probably mentioned this last week, even the replacement for Judas was chosen by the Lord. Remember Judas, the miserable ending, throws the silver into the court of the chief priest. We don't want that. What does this mean? deal is done. There's no taking this back, whatever. Sorry you feel bad about it. We got what we wanted. He goes out and hangs himself. Couldn't even do that. The branch breaks. He falls down. His guts fall out. Last last uh, phrase uh, that refers to Judas in the Bible is his entrails spilled out. That's his legacy. So they're in the upper room deciding who will replace him. We've got to have a replacement 
for him, who's going to take his place, has to be someone who was with us, an eyewitness to all the things that Jesus said and did. They choose two guys, Joseph and Matthias, and here's the verse. They prayed, Acts one twenty four, and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen. At Lego again. So Jesus made a decision to choose these specific 12, then Judas falls away and he replaces him, to follow him. Now these are, we've looked at all of them for the last three months, one at a time, with the exception of three that we don't know much about. Each week we're coming and examining these men's lives. There is nothing extraordinary about any of these individuals. They are common, normal non-special, everyday individuals. In fact, if we were making the decision, they are probably not the people that we would have chosen. He takes maybe three sets of brothers, for sure two. Remember, Matthew and James, son of Alphaeus, could have been brothers, speculation, but he chooses basically all from one region, except for Judas, who comes from Carias. So all from one place. You know, why isn't he picking the best of the best from all over? It's because, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, won't read the whole thing. But even as it relates to our calling, God chooses foolish things to shame the wise. God chooses weak things to put the mighty down. And God chooses the despised things of the world. And why does he do that? For the same reason that Derek kicked off our worship this morning in Jeremiah chapter 9. Why does he choose weak, foolish, and debased things? So that no one can do what? Glory. Glory is the word, but boast, right? Take credit themselves. Let the person who glories, glory in this, is what Derek read this morning, in that he knows and understands me. Don't let the rich man think, look at me. Don't let the, the smart or intellectual, don't let the, uh, the, the handsome, the good-looking man think I'm, I'm so special, right? Let them glory that they know me. God chooses foolish, weak, despised things so that he might receive the glory. So I started to look at this word, choose or chose in verse number 13 and ask myself these three questions I, I here's here's an inside look into what happens in this room when I start studying I get a yellow piece of paper and I just start writing any thought that comes down to my mind I like to do that before I look into any books so that I can see if I'm thinking the right way so I wrote down these three questions and normally this doesn't happen but it happened this way that the three questions become the outline for the message okay so here's the three questions that I asked myself first of all What did Jesus choose them from? What did Jesus choose them to? And what did Jesus choose them for? And those will be the three questions that we answer. And again, the whole point of the lesson today is, Master, make me like you. And in response to each of those three questions, I've kind of come up with one key word that we're going to hang our thoughts on, and and that'll that'll be our lesson today. And then next week, we're going to move right on in the study of Luke because in chapter 6, verse 17 and following, as soon as he chooses these 12, he then starts really giving them instructions. And so it's going to be really a continual process of being formed and shaped. The master's still going to make us through his teaching over the, re- over the next few months as we continue to study the gospel. Okay, so what did Jesus choose them from? What did Jesus choose them to? And what did Jesus choose them for? And now the answers, two of the answers come in John 15, which we read earlier, and the other answer is going to come in Mark 3. So let's begin by looking at John 15. We basically have to look at these two passages today, John 15 and Mark 3, to help us answer these questions. And again, I want to relate them to the 12, but then 
even though he chose the 12 this way, they, they're still his application as he selects Ephesians 1 for us to be his followers and disciples. John 15, we actually didn't read this part, but you'll be able to answer the question. Question number one, what did Jesus choose these men from? Look at verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is the answer to question number one? What did Jesus choose them from? The world. He chose them from the world. Now that's not the key word that I'm going to give you, but it, but it is the answer to the question. The context in John chapter 15 is the imminent departure of Jesus to go back, first of all, to the cross, and then to go back to the Heavenly Father and, and sit at the right hand. And these are instructions for the ongoing ministry. Kicks off in John 14 with the men being freaked out because Jesus is leaving. And remember the three great questions the disciples asked. Sh Thomas says, show us the way. Uh, Jesus says, hey, you know the way. Uh, uh, Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, you've seen the Father. And then Judas asks the best question of all. Remember, he says, show, show everybody this stuff. And Jesus says, the only people that will see this stuff and have uh, insight into these matters is the people who obey me and love me, and, and they prove their love by their obedience. And so part of the instructions that Jesus is giving these men, he, right, he's about to leave, and he's in Think about, I almost said, think about the, um, and I don't mean this this way, but think about the, uh, the risk and the gamble that Jesus is taking. He's leaving. And he's going to entrust all of Christianity to these 12 knuckleheads. Right? And yet, because of the Spirit's empowerment, right, and their dependence upon Christ, they are going to carry on the ministry just as Christ commanded. And, and in a sense, we're the knuckleheads right now that are entrusted to, to carrying on the kingdom of Christ. And, and we don't do it because we are gifted or special or wise or mighty. We do it because of the Spirit's empowerment, too. It's, it's, it's the process is still continuing, which is incredible to be part of that process. But as part of these instructions to these 12, he, he, he takes a little paragraph here to say, now what will your relationship with the world be like? You know, as you go out and you proclaim and teach and you depend on me and you're bearing fruit and you're abiding in me, I wonder what the world's going to think of that. And he instructs them that the world is going to hate you. And don't be surprised at that because they hated me. John, who wrote this gospel, wrote this same thing in 1 John 3, verse 13, when he said, don't marvel or, or don't be surprised that the world hates you. And just think through, I mean, when, when I study or read the Bible, I, I, ask, I ask it questions, and you should do that. So, so the question is, why will the world hate these men? Why will the world hate these men? Because they hated Christ. We hate Christ, and if you're like Christ, we hate, we hate anybody like that. Now, the question that comes to my mind, why did these people hate Jesus? And, and you're whispering, and, and I don't mean for you to answer out loud yet, but doesn't it blow you away? Healing people, loving the down and outers, kind and compassionate, fantastic teacher, opens up the scriptures. Wow, we've never heard anybody teach like this. I got a great idea to do with this loving, kind, good teacher. Let's kill him. Right? Doesn't that surprise you? Uh, why would anyone feel that way towards Christ? 
And the answer is because the world stands in rebellion against God. The world stands in rebellion against God. You're familiar with this passage, so I don't ask you to turn there, except just listen to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. There's some uh, really deep meaning in those words. Why do the people rage? The, the word is really uh, a, an idea of commotion, but it has a stronger, it's not like a commotion. It's, it's more of the picture of an angry mob. An angry mob. Any of you ever seen, uh, what came to my mind when I saw that word, anybody seen the old movie To Kill a Mockingbird, which is an awesome old movie, black and white, and, and the, 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 uh, the lawyer is, is trying to protect the, uh, the it's, it's in the South, it's a black man has been accused of something that he didn't do, but the, it's all these racial overtones. And so the black man is in jail, and an angry mob of people come to the jail. That, that's the idea. You got, and, and we've seen angry mobs on television in protests. It's not something we have to go to a movie to think about. We, we've seen that type of thing. This is the picture of Psalm 2. And who is the mob? Who makes up the mob? It's the nations of the world. It's all people who are rising up in rage against the Lord and against his anointed. The word against is used sometimes in the Bible of an attacking army. These are strong words. It's, the world is not indifferent to the Lord. The world is not indifferent to Christ. The world is not indifferent to Christians. One commentary suggested that Psalm 2 is really relating that there is a total international conspiracy against God. And it's common in all nations and amongst all people. Even the kings and rulers do not acknowledge Jehovah. They have no allegiance to him, and they are depicted here as desiring to rebel against his lordship. They want to cast off his cords. They want to break his bonds. They do not want to be attached to this God at all. We do not want to be subject to his rule. We do not want to be loyal to him. We, we, we have a consistent and consolidated army against God. Understand this. The world stands in opposition to God. So now ask, keep thinking. The answer to the question, what did Jesus choose these men from? The answer was what? Chose them from the world. So he chose them from this pool of people. Right. This is the attitude of the world towards God and towards Christ. And he chose them from a group of people who, prior to his choosing them, they were also in that company. Prior to God's choosing you and me, you were in that group. God chose who? Here's the key word. God chose who? Rebels. God chose rebels. It's, it's an astonishing thought. We sing a couple of songs with that word rebel in it. Um, the one that I can think of 
uh, and I, I didn't write them down, but the one I can think of is, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe I can't think of it. Uh, was, is it all I have a cr- was Christ and t- uh, tell my or relentless love? He chased me until my rebel soul was caught. I think we sang the word rebel in one of the songs today. I, can't, I think it was Oh Great God. Uh, doesn't matter. You, you understand what the idea of being a rebel is. Someone who doesn't want anything to do with Christ, and he chooses them out of that group. That's quite a thought. First, uh, John 15, 19, I chose you out of this world. Think about these verses. First John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you think about Jesus choosing these 12 men, it wasn't that these 12 men somehow rose above that world. Oh, and now they're worthy and they merit being part of my team because they have an affinity towards me. No, they were in the cesspool of rebels as well. And it was just that Christ, in his great compassion and sovereign kindness, picked them out of it. There's no merit. There's no sensitivity. You know, uh, Nathaniel and Matthew didn't have some super sensitivity to spiritual things. And while the rest of the world hated Jesus, they were like, oh, come on, give him a break. He's a good guy. Neither were we. They were chosen out of the world. They were just as much a part of the, quote, nations in Psalm 2. They were part of the, quote, international conspiracy when they were chosen. This is an amazing thought. And if you write anything down, write this down on number one. Jesus chooses rebels, and he makes them his disciples. (laughs) So what is the point here that we're saying, Master, make me like you? Master, make me like you. You chose me. From the rebellion of the world, you chose me as a rebel to be your follower. So what's the immediate application? Make some sort of application. If that's the case, then what? As a follower of Christ, don't what? Don't don't revert to that. Don't, Don't act as a rebel anymore. We understand that every single time that we violate the commands of God. Here we're talking about it in John 15, 9 and 10. Verse 10 specifically. If you keep my commandments. A person who doesn't keep the commandments is a what? A rebel. A rebel. We say that about our children. If they, if they disobey us, you have a spirit of rebellion. You're, you want your own way. That's what a rebel wants. They don't want someone over them instructing them what to do. And so they rebel against that. Becoming like Jesus is part of being transformed into his image is, is saying, he, I love what we talked about this morning, remembering that I was once a rebel, why would I ever return to that state even for a moment? 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Becoming like Jesus, it's a, it's a process, okay? I don't want to be too brainy here, but the Bible word for growing as a Christian, or the theological word, is called sanctification. Okay, sanctification. And there's two types of sanctification. There's, there's what's called a positional sanctification and then there's a progressive sanctification positional sanctification happens at the moment 
you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you ask him to save you from your sins, you recognize that you are in a state of rebellion against him and because of that you deserve condemnation and death. And, and you respond with repentance and in faith and ask Christ to forgive you and, and you are positionally now, you're positionally sanctified. You're, you're holy, set apart. That's basically, basically what it means. He takes you out of that, out of that pool of rebellion and he sets you apart. You are, you are no longer connected with that positionally. That never changes. But progressive sanctification is, is a process that happens over the rest of your Christian life. And, and the process is basically uh, more and more like God and less and less like sin. More and more like God, less and less like sin. And so as we think about being, being like Christ, Master, make me like you, it, it is a process. There will be times in and there will be moments of rebellion, but when we sense that in ourselves, we remind ourselves, why would I ever return to that state of rebellion when he chose me out of that? Now, each of these are going to build on each other, so let's ask ourselves the second question. What did he choose them to? Look at Mark chapter 3. Keep a bookmark in John 15 because the answer to the third question is right back here in, in John 15, but I want to jump to a, just a, a sentence in Mark 3 that is very helpful too. Okay, so what is a secret to avoid returning regularly to this state of rebellion? And the answer is, what did Jesus choose them to? If he chose them from the world, what did he choose them to? Maybe you're trying to answer the question in your own mind, which you should be. I'll take a drink and give you 30 seconds to think about this. Mark chapter 3 is the same as in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. It's just a different record of him choosing the twelve. Okay, it starts in verse number 13. He went up to a mountain, just like we read in Luke 6, just a different account, and he called to him those he himself wanted. Now, even before you pass it, that's, that's pretty crazy, too. He wants these men. And they came to him, and he appointed the 12, uh, and then the list is, is given. But in verse 14, here's what he chose them to. He appointed 12 that they might be with him be with him. So the answer, what did Jesus choose them to? To be with him. To be with him. I'm going to expand on what I think that means. It also starts with the letter R. He chose rebels to be in a relationship with him. He chose rebels to be with him. To be in a relationship with him. The, the, the word with is such a great word even to pass over. It's, it's just a simple word it means to be among, to have companionship, to have fellowship. Remember when we talked about the disciples, because it gets confusing, because he calls them at the seashore, they drop their nets, and that's not the first time they met. Remember there's a period of time where they're going with him to place to place, and then they kind of go back to their homes. It's at this moment, close to the halfway mark of Jesus' ministry. We know his ministry was, how long? Three years, so about a year and a half in, he makes this selection, about a year and a half. So for the next year and a half, these guys are staying with him all the time. For the first year and a half, it was kind of like back and forth, back and forth. Now he finally makes that final decision. And these 12 are going to be constantly with him. What are they going to be doing? Listening, hearing, observing. One of the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, things we kind of glossed over at the very beginning when they chose Matthias to replace Judas in Acts one twenty one, one of the conditions for that person's resume was 
he had to have accompanied us all the time. Had to have accompanied us all the time to see and hear the things that Jesus said and did. The call that Jesus makes, this, this, is, this, is, this is surprising, right? You're in this rebellion. He chooses the disciples out of that rebellion and then just doesn't say, okay, now go on and do something. He says, now, come be with me. Have a relationship with me. That Christ offers to us to have a relationship with him is certainly something that we take for granted. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it is seen by unbelievers that the reason that these men are changed and courageous and powerful and convincing uh, is because they'd been with Jesus. Remember this little verse in Acts 4, 13? The men saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceiving they were uneducated, untrained men. Remember 1 Corinthians? They were weak, foolish, unwise, debased. They're fishermen from Galilee. It was even a, it was even a downer when the, when the girl says, I know you, you speak like a Galilean. It's, it's a real, these guys are, how are they so bold and courageous? They're powerful preachers. How is that? Well, they realized, Acts 4.13, that they had been with Jesus. The change happened because they observed Jesus' teaching and, and acting. Now, I said we weren't going to look at any other passages, but I look at one verse, and I have it cut and pasted in my notes, but I'd rather us look at it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and then we'll finally make our way back to John 15 and finish. 2 Corinthians 3.18 expresses this, okay? Here's how you become like Christ. You don't return to a state of rebellion, and, and how do you avoid returning to a state of rebellion? You spend time in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what does that really mean? Spend time in a, I mean, that sounds like a Christian platitude. What does it mean? Simpler than, it's more simple, I guess, than we would imagine. 2 Corinthians 3 is a discussion of the old versus the new covenant. And the old covenant is passing away, and the new covenant is eternal. And the old covenant starts, you can just kind of glance at some verses here. We're going to come to the end of the chapter in a minute. But it, in verse 12 and 13, it talks about Moses who went up on the mountain and had to put a veil on his face. And remember, he even kept the veil on his face when he came down, and it finally kind of wore off. That, that's just a summary of what was happening. Um, but then in verse 15, Paul takes that metaphor of the veil, and, and well, the reality of it, and makes it into a metaphor. Look at verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Okay, so what is the veil a metaphor for? Answer out loud. Here, I'll read it again so you can think about it for a second. When To this day, when the law is read, or when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Now, obviously, it's not a real veil, so what is it? Think. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What do you think the veil is? What do you think the veil is symbolic of? close yeah it's unbelief rebellion is really an expression of unbelief so that was really a right answer as well it's a it's a it's a symbol of unbelief and when you turn to christ that veil is torn away so that you no longer are confused or uh, uncertain about the glory of christ and that's what it goes on to say okay look at verse 18 now but we 
all, that is everyone who has turned to Christ and is no longer in this state of unbelief, with unveiled face, a believing face, they behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We all who have come to believe in Christ, pulled from that pool of rebellion and now into a relationship with him, we have an unveiled face. Nothing is blocking a correct vision of who Christ is and all of his glory. There, all of you are, who are believers today, when I say something about, when I say, isn't Christ glorious? A believer says, yeah, you act like you believe. Yeah, right on, right? Yeah, no kidding. You bet he is. An unbeliever says, what's wrong with these weirdos? Yeah, Jesus is a nice teacher. To us, he's not a nice teacher. He's the glorious God-man, the Savior of the world, right? So we have that unveiled face, and we see Christ as the all-glorious Savior, nothing blocking our view. So when we're in that relationship with him, gazing on his glory, and by the way, where do we gaze on the glory of Christ? One place, his word. He's not walking in the door for us. Ooh, here he is. He's expressed here. Okay? So when we gaze on his glory, unblocked by our, by our unbelief, that's gone. And we contemplate his glory. We read, we think about him pulling us as rebels. We think about him, his teaching and his, his compassion and all of his humility in coming to earth. We're going to talk about that tonight, right before communion. We contemplate and consider that. Here's what happens. We are then, verse 18, being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Christ. Master, make me like you. Well, how does that happen? You come out of that rebellion because of his choosing. You're in this relationship with him. You gaze at him. You contemplate his glory you spend time in his word, and you are changed into the same image. And here's a great phrase, from glory to glory. All that means is you, go, you, don't, you don't go, boom, and you're exactly like Christ. What it's saying is it's ever-increasing stages of glory. Okay, I was saved as a young child. I would like to say, I would like to think, I guess, uh, that, that I have been becoming more like Christ and I still have a long way to go, right? And everyone said about that. Yeah, everybody said, amen, you still do. We know that. And we all do, right? Just kind of making a joke here. But you, we all have this place. But you would like to think that, that in the 25 or 30 years that I've been a Christian or so, that, that, those, that there has been increasing stages, right? I, I'm moving progressively to become like Christ. It's the progressive sanctification. And it happens as I spend time thinking about the Lord. And I don't sit in the car and listen to stupid sports radio the whole time. I spend time contemplating what was read in the scripture. I spend time listening to some messages. I spend time meditating on a scripture. Right? What a great point Derek made this morning about I give two hours to the TV and I give five minutes to the Lord. Right? Isn't that a convicting thought? You know what's going to happen when you spend two hours staring at the glory of the television? you are going to be transformed into that same image. 
We become like him by looking at him, listening to him, thinking on him. And it's like, well, I wish we could have been like the disciples, right? They had, that, they had the blessing of seeing him face to face. We have a greater blessing of the full and complete authoritative word of God. Consider again Romans 12, too. That ever-increasing glory, we re- represent him more and more and better and better as we look and study and think of him. And listen, this is something that is done on a personal level, something you do at home. We offer all kinds of times and programs for this to happen, right? But if you depend just on the times and programs that the church offers, it's not this, this growth is not going to happen. It happens on a personal basis, a personal level. It's you and your Bible in Christ. Consider again Luke 6.40, that we are fully trained and we become like our teacher. The, the disciples and the early followers of Christ were so successful at this that people called them little Christs. People didn't go into the world saying, we've got a new name for ourselves now. We want everybody to refer to us as Christians, okay? No, this was something that the enemies of Christ labeled the first believers as because they look so much like Jesus. Great connection with what Derek shared this morning. I hate to keep going back to that, but it's such a link, isn't it, to that smell and the aroma that we give off. Is there that expression? This is not the end. What did Jesus choose them from? Answer the world, rebels. What did he choose them to? He chose them to a relationship. But what did he choose them for? There's a purpose. Go back to John 15 now, and finally, and we'll finish. John 14, or 15, please. And this will be the shortest and quickest of the three, okay? What did Jesus choose them for? Look at John 15. You got a bulletin, so I don't hear pages turning, so you can probably jump right back. We're ready to go. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, this is not the right verse. Hold on a second. I know where I know why I'm looking at the wrong verse. It's verse 16. Sorry, verse 16. We, verse 19 was the first one. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Here it is. Why? That you should go and bear fruit and that, that your fruit should remain. Okay, so please answer out loud and help me do it nicely. What did Jesus choose them to? Or what did Jesus choose them from? The world. What did he choose them to? A relationship. Now, what did he choose them for? To bear fruit. He chose them to bear fruit. So here's the third letter R word. And this is, what, this is how I think, and it helps me. He chose rebels to enter a relationship to produce results. That's, this is the Christian life in a nutshell. You were a rebel. He chose you out of that. The whole of your life now is spent in a relationship with Jesus, but the goal of that relationship is results. The Bible word is fruit. You're supposed to bear fruit. God is not just calling us to some meaningless spiritual experience, but to one that bears fruit. Now, the New Testament, and we'll just go quickly at this. The New Testament, well, what is this fruit? And in this context, it could be something else, but we know throughout the scriptures we're called to bear fruit. I'll give us a, a few options here, and all of them could fit. First of all, and uh, let me say, I got one, two, uh, maybe three, maybe four options and they all probably fit. This is the expectation of a follower of Christ. The first is, of course, the fruit of the Spirit. Right? I mean, we know that is supposed to be a natural product of a relationship with God. The New Testament describes this fruit as the godly attitudes of Galatians 5, 22, and 23. Love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and self-control, and there's no law against any of these things. Now, we must point this out. Look at John 15, 5. These are only produced as you abide in this relationship, in the vine. Because without me, you can produce nothing. The, res- the order is important here. Rebels that try to produce results without a relationship are actually depending on this fruit for their salvation. And God says all that righteousness is as filthy rags. I don't, but, but rebels who are pulled out and enter into this walk with Christ, those results are only produced because the Spirit is producing them through. That's why they're called fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of Andy. Because the Spirit is producing those fruits through us and through you. Okay? Those are only the result of our connection to Christ. Second, right attitudes. Third, uh, a second fruit would be right behavior. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11 talks about this fruit, this, the actions. 1 John 2, 6 says anyone who receives Christ must walk as Jesus did. When it says in Philippians 1, verse 11, the fruits of righteousness, it might better be able to say the fruit that the righteousness produces. In other words, the relationship with Jesus Christ produces those righteous actions. They come by Jesus. Even that verse tells us that. Do you know what success in the Christian life is? What is a successful Christian life? Well, it's going to produce this fruit. It's going to produce this fruit. If it doesn't produce this fruit, it is not successful. We had cherries on this cherry tree uh, earlier this summer. We had a nice cherry pie. If we go out there and this cherry tree isn't producing, let's say for the next couple of years, we're going to obviously recognize what about that tree? Something is wrong. It's not producing right. It is not successful. You know what we're going to do? Cut it down. Just like you do at home when things die in your yard and things aren't producing fruit. Does that sound funny? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you, just like John the Baptist said in Luke 3, was it Luke 3? I can't remember if that's the right chapter, but the guys came to him and he says, bring us fruits that keep with repentance. Prove it. The person who says they were a rebel and are in a relationship with God and there's no results, By your fruit, you will know them. That might take more inspection for some of us, but there will be eventually some fruit discovered. These righteous actions, these righteous attitudes, if they are not present, there is no relationship. doesn't matter how much you say. Results are the, the proof or the demonstration of a successful Christian life. Let's quickly mention the, second, the other options. Could be righteous attitudes, could be righteous behavior through the Spirit, could be simply our offering of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips. I, I looked out a lot today because I knew the songs we were singing and we're not using the screen. Sometimes I look back there to make, so I'm looking out a lot. And when you, when you look at people, you can kind of tell who's, who's really ready to worship and who's excited and enthused about it and who's really not. You know, it's just another aspect of the connection with God. For me, I mean, it, again, it ties so perfectly. I, the four terms, I'm not looking at the sheet, see if I can remember. The, the gratitude, the reverence, the remembrance, and the amazement. Right? When those come together in this pure worship, you walk in this room and it's like you're, you're like a, uh, 
you're like a firework that's been lit and you can't stop the explosion of praise because of all that you've been considering. Wait a minute, I was a rebel with no hope on my own. He pulled me out of that and now I have a relationship with him and I get the privilege and opportunity to sing these wonderful songs. That's another fruit that is expected. And fourthly, it's the fruit of leading others to faith in Christ. Romans 1, 13 to 16 talks about this. Um, also, we note the command of Christ to these 12 to go out and make disciples, to reproduce yourself, to teach them to observe all things. So, when we think, Master, make me like you, we're reminded that he pulled us as rebels into a relationship with him for the purpose of bearing fruit or results that will honor and glorify our God. What a series this has been. Master, make me like you. And the great part about it is we have about 20 more chapters of teaching from Christ that is going to continue to refine us as we come to the study of Luke, especially next week, his Sermon on the Plain. What's amazing is he takes these 12 disciples out of the midst of really what is persecution for him. The people are already against him, and he goes in the Beatitudes, and he says, he talks about the world, and then he says, blessed are you when men revile you and hate you because your reward is in heaven. And this great instruction for us, hey, master, make us like you. Let's bow to prayer. Father, it has been a real privilege and treat to study these men and to see how you changed them and to know that the same can be true for us.